For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to talk about the sin of self-righteousness. Romans 2, verse 1 through 29. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background here, Paul just got done kind of railing the non-Jewish people for all of the moral wrongdoings they commit. And he's spent pretty much uh, 38 verses doing that. And so now these uh, people who are sitting in, in the crowd, the audience listening, who are f- probably feeling pretty s- smug and self-righteous, uh, Paul now turns the lens on them and confronts them for their attitude. He starts off in verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. So Paul opens this section by uncovering a peculiar human tendency. That is, we tend to be critical of everybody but ourselves. That there's a tendency we have to put other people on a tight moral budget, but then give ourselves tons of allowances. And so what he's confronting here is something that's very common where, you know, we tend to get really angry. We work ourselves up into this frenzy of moral indignation over somebody else's wrongdoing. But then when we see that appear in our own lives, we tend to overlook it or not think it's that big of a deal. Thomas Hobbes, the 18th century political philosopher, said, people are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of another man. That's totally true. One of the reasons why we fall into this self-righteous attitude is because it makes us feel better about ourselves, keeps ourselves in good favor. He also says that at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. So the real irony of self-righteousness is that since you have such sophisticated moral radar to detect even the slightest moral imperfections in others, then really you have no excuse for seeing the moral problems in your own life. And so therefore you condemn yourself when you engage in self-righteous behavior. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 and 3, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? He says, you know, when when you're falling into this self-righteous way of thinking, you're actually engaging in unrighteous judgment. And, you know, in our culture today, to be judgmental or to judge other people for what, what they're doing is like one of the worst things you can possibly do. And for the most part, the Bible agrees that we shouldn't be judging other people. The Bible talks often about unrighteous judgment. For example, we shouldn't be going around judging other people's motives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, how can you tell what's in another person's heart? Only the spirit of man can search that man's heart. And so really, we are not in a position to see people's motives clearly, even though it's easy for us to attach 
these sinister motives to things that people say or do. Really, arrogance fuels motive judging. When we say, I know for a fact that he or she said or did this for these reasons, then we're assuming a position of omniscience, aren't we? We're suggesting that we can peer into the heart of another individual and discern what they're thinking. And yet, the Bible says that the only one who can actually do that is God himself, that he knows the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. So it's arrogant for us to think that we can tell what people are thinking. In fact, motive judging also exposes our cynicism. You know, when we attach dark motives to things that people say or do, we're not exposing people for their motives. We're actually exposing ourselves for the warped view that we have about that person. And so uh, it really shows something about who we are when we engage in judging people's motives. Secondly, uh, you run into self-righteous judgment. It's another form of unrighteous judgment in the Bible. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 1 through 3, Don't judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you watch somebody do something and you feel this tinge of just moral indignation. And then you realize, wait a second, I do the same thing. And you're like, oh, man, bums me out. Now, those of you who are like, I can't believe he does something like that, well, then you just have exposed yourself as a self-righteous judger as well. So welcome to the club. <laughs> you know, everybody falls into this where we measure people up to a certain standard, but we fall short of that measurement as well. Also, in verse 1, Paul says, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same thing. We often fall into the same tendencies that we condemn. Also, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, we do not dare classify or compare ourselves with someone who commend themselves, when, we measure, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. In other, in other words, when we're going around judging other people, we're sizing them up. We're trying to find ways in which we feel we are morally superior to them. And it's really a way of trying to elevate ourselves. It's a way of pointing out to ourselves and maybe others that we're better than this other individual. Now, <clears throat> I think that a lot of people in our culture today will say it's wrong to judge. And, you know, they'll even quote things that Jesus says. For example, they'll, they'll say stuff like, you who, is, who are without sin, cast the first stone. Or, um, you know, they'll quote a passage in the Bible talking about judgment and yet, in the context of those passages, Jesus is typically pointing out somebody's moral wrongdoing, but combating self-righteous judgment, the hypocrisy that many of the religious leaders were falling into. And so, there is really a place for righteous judgment. In fact, God calls on us to engage in it. Um, he himself engages in it. Paul says God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. 
And so God has a standard by which he judges people. It's not arbitrary, it's universal. And so he's not saying, okay, look, I like you, but I don't like you, and so therefore you're in. Instead, God has a moral standard that stretches across time and really covers all cultures. And that standard is based upon his perfect moral character. And so anything that falls short of that, of his moral perfection, according to him, deserves judgment. And at times, God calls on us to pass righteous judgment as well. For example, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 15 and 16, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, and by their fruit you will recognize them. So he says that there are gonna be these people who come who are going to spread false teaching, and he says you need to be able to judge righteously, that is, discern correctly, whether or not what they're saying is actually coming from me. And so God calls on us to engage in righteous judgment. In addition to that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12 that it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. You know, Tupac famously coined the term, only God can judge me. You know, and the question I have is, why are we taking our moral lessons from Tupac. Why should we listen to him, right? But a lot of people, they use that to say, well, nobody has the right to judge you or to condemn things that you're doing as wrong. And yet, one of the things that God says is that within the church, one of the things he wants us to do is engage in loving correction. You know, one of the real problems that people in our culture have is They see the hypocrisy in the church and it bothers them. It's really one of the huge barriers that they have to Christianity. They snort their nose in contempt whenever they see the new sex scandal, new misappropriation of funds that they hear about in the news, and leadership abuse. And so, you know, what are we supposed to do? On the one hand, many non-Christian people critique the church because of its hypocrisy, because There's rampant sin and immorality in the church, and yet, what are we supposed to do? Do nothing when we see it? In the context of this passage, actually, Paul was calling out something that was morally reprehensible. There was this guy in their group who was actually sleeping with his father's wife, and it's not clear whether or not it was his biological mother. And so Paul was like, you guys are just sitting there watching this happen, and you're you're not going to do anything? That's disgusting. That's a problem. And so one of the things that God wants us to do is gently but firmly bring about loving correction in people's lives. And we should do this with a posture of humility, gentleness, and an awareness of our own moral frailty. You know, we're not supposed to go in there and condemn other people, but we're supposed to bring about gentle correction with love knowing that we fall into the same habits and problems that many of the people we talk to have. And so God wants us at times to engage in righteous judgment. Paul says, or do you you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, 
tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. So apparently, a lot of these people were hiding under the theological bunker of God's kindness, saying that they were exempt from God's punishment. And I think, you know, in our culture today, this is pretty popular, where many people believe there's a good God who lives in a good place reserved for good people. And so basically, all world religions are basically the same. And every religion has its own legitimate path to lead us to a good God who lives in a good place. And so I think one of the things that we see in many world religions is that they differ in terms of what they think is good, but what they have in common is the fact that you have to do good things in order to arrive in that good place like heaven. And yet, one of the things that God says is that when you look at your good works, it's not good enough. That God actually desires, he requires moral perfection. You know, the main reason why God shows his kindness is to lead us to repentance. So it's not to excuse us of our moral wrongdoing, but to lead us to repentance which is sort of a churchy term that describes a change of mind, an alteration in direction. You know, it's like you're moving in this one direction, but then because of what God says, you decide to move in this other direction toward him. And so one of the things that God wants is for us to take this posture of humility and admit, I don't have it, I don't have it all together. I don't know what I'm doing and ultimately, if I'm going to have a relationship with you, it needs to be because of what you've done. <clears throat> he says in verse 5 and 6, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. This last part here in verse six where he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. I think most people think that that's the way that you get to heaven, that you do good things or avoid bad things. And that's ultimately how God expects for you to approach him. I think a lot of times we think of things sort of our lives as a cosmic scale of works. You know, you got your bad works, your good works, and it's like, you know, from our perspective, you do some bad things, you lose your temper on your roommate, you know, you lie, you cheat on your taxes. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of bad. You know, you have your, your moral, your cosmic scale is off balance here. It's tilted toward the bad side. And so what you need to do then is you need to do some good things in order to tip the scales back in favor or sort of balance it out. So, you know, maybe you'll do some charitable giving or do something sacrificial. You might love somebody, show kindness to them. So, you know, you, everything is back in order the way it should be. And so the idea is that at the end of your life, if you can manage to have more good works than bad works in your life, then, you know, maybe God at that point will accept you. Maybe he'll be like, okay, that's good enough. And so you get into heaven. At least that's what we hope. But from God's perspective, things are a little bit different than that. You know, God says that 
he requires moral perfection. That's difficult to even fathom, right? The idea of living a morally upright life. Just take the Ten Commandments, for example. Imagine living out the Ten Commandments, which might be hard for us to do since, you know, probably most of us can't even name more than three or four. So you think about the Ten Commandments, and let's say we just pick one. Commandment number nine, you shall not lie, right? So take that, for example, just that one thing, and you decide from here on out, I'm not going to lie anymore. And we're not talking about just outright lies. We're also talking about using revisionist accounts when we're talking to people to paint ourselves in a better light. That also means uh, staying away from omitting certain pieces of information in order to minimize our culpability. It also means recounting stories in a correct way so that we don't leave people with the wrong impression. So imagine doing that for the rest of your life and that would be good enough. But then on top of that, Imagine fulfilling the other commandments, the other nine. So not stealing, not committing adultery, not murdering. And you think to yourself, That's, I, I could do that probably. I don't, go, I don't have impulses to murder people, right? But Jesus said that it's not, just, it's not good enough to just curb the impulse to murder your roommate when they fail to do the dishes, Right? But Jesus says, for example, he says, you say you shall not commit adultery. It's written. But I tell you, if a man lusts for a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. So it's not good enough just to abstain from killing somebody or stealing from somebody or committing adultery. It's also the heart attitude that drives those behaviors that God says we should refrain from. So imagine resisting thoughts of jealousy, resisting our thoughts of anger, our impulse to, to commit violence. I mean, that would be really difficult, right? But it turns out that's not enough. You know, when Jesus was talking to one of the experts of the law during his life, he said, how would you summarize the law and the prophets? And uh, the guy says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good, so go and do that. You know, think about, try to wrap your mind around what that would look like. To love God with all your mind, with all your strength, with all of your heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. I mean, Think about loving and forgiving your family members and friends, even though they continually disappoint you, they betray you, they intentionally hurt you. Serving the people that God has put in your life continually. Um, in addition to that, um, deciding that you are going to serve even when you feel tired. Doing that all the time. And then, you know, on top of that, you have, you have love for the poor. You know, let's say you decide once a year that you go to Bangladesh and serve child prostitute victims there. And uh, on top of that, you know, you pet dogs and kiss babies whenever you see them, right? So you, you just, you're trying to think of like the most incredible life you could possibly live 
And so God says, okay, so you've done all those things, you just made the cut. You're like, what? So wait, your expectation is for me to not only abstain from any moral wrongdoing, but you expect me to love people continually and to love you continually, and that's good enough? He's like, yeah, that's the cut. And the reality is, even one act of moral wrongdoing tips the scales according to God. And let's be honest. I mean, it wouldn't even be just one thing. I mean, we could just pile on all the things that we've done in our lives and it would totally outweigh any of the good stuff we've done. Now, you might think to yourself, how can one act of wrongdoing condemn us? That seems a little bit harsh, right? Well, Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. He says, cursed is everybody who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. In other words, if you want to make it, if you want to escape the curse of the law, then you need to live consistently with the law and fulfill every single portion of it. We're going to talk more about that next week when we look at Romans chapter 3. But, you know, maybe an analogy would sort of help us understand this. You know, imagine you're walking down the street and somebody comes up armed with a gun and they rob you, okay? And so several days later, after you file a police report, the police pick up a suspect. And so they bring you to the station, and you're able to ID this person in a lineup. And so it goes to trial, and all of the evidence that the prosecutor is putting forward is condemning. I mean, it's very clear that this guy committed the robbery. You ID'd him. There were actually witnesses who saw him fleeing the the scene of the crime with a gun in his hand. And so it's pretty obvious that this guy was the one who robbed you. So uh, when the jury convenes, comes back, they say this guy's guilty. So sentencing phase comes, and and when the judge says, do you have anything that you have to say, the convicted criminal says, well, I just want you to understand one thing. You know that money that I stole from this guy? I used that to take care of my family because I didn't have enough to feed my family. And the surplus that I had, I gave away to all the poor people in my neighborhood. What if the judge said, all right, don't do it again, get out of here. You'd be like, what? No. That would be moral injustice, right? I mean, that, that would be wrong for him to do that. I mean, we would say, okay, and this guy said, look, I'll pay all of that back, and I promise that I'm going to live the rest of my life uh, trying to be good because of what I've done here. You'd be like, that's great, but you're still going to go to prison because you're guilty. No matter what you did with that money, no matter how many good works you did after that is not going to wipe your slate clean. It's not going to make you innocent. Likewise, when we commit even one act of moral wrongdoing, by definition, we are morally imperfect. And God's standard happens to be moral perfection. That's the problem that we run into. 
Paul goes on, he says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek honor or glory, honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So he's not switching over here to say that if you do good things, then God's gonna give you eternal life. He's simply saying that God is impartial. He goes on to say in verse eight and nine, for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jewish person, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first to the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. In other words, he's saying that I'll grant you eternal life if you live morally perfect lives, but if you don't, then you're gonna expect moral judgment because I don't show favoritism, I don't show partiality. Now, it's interesting, if you look at Romans 1, verse 16, Paul points out that God brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jewish person, then to the Gentile, that is the non-Christian person. So he gives grace to the Jewish people because they're his chosen people, but also they are under higher accountability because they have the law. With special favor and revelation comes greater accountability, which is something I think for us to ponder. You know, if we're acting in ignorance, if we've never heard about the message of Christ, we're under a certain amount of accountability because of what we see in creation. But when we hear about the message of Christ and God explains it to us through somebody, somebody that he's put into our lives, then we're even more culpable. We're even more accountable. He says in verse 12, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So it's not really a matter of whether you have the law or not. It's a matter of whether or not you live consistently with the law. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them. You know, last week we talked about this sense that we have within us as human beings that there's something unique about us, that we actually have God's imprint upon us. That we, when we look at certain aspects, certain dimensions of our personhood, they point back to God. You know, I sort of glossed over the one about morality, but um, I was reading an article recently and there was this guy named A.N. Wilson who is this prolific English author and columnist. And in the 1970s, when he graduated from Oxford, he actually decided that he wanted to go into the ministry as an Anglican priest, but then sometime later actually lost his faith. And so he ended up actually writing a book about his atheism. And he says, I realized that after a lifetime of church going, the whole house of cards had collapsed for me. The sense of God's presence in life and the notion that there was any kind of God let alone a merciful God in this brutal, nasty world. It was nonsense. The idea of a personal God or a loving God in a suffering universe. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. 
It was such a relief to discard it all for, for months, I walked on air. And so he felt this sense of relief to be able to dispose of his belief in God. And yet he admits that years later, he started to doubt his doubts about God. He says, my doubting temperament, however, made me, very uh, made me a very unconvincing atheist and unconvinced. My hilarious neighbor, Colin Haycraft, used to say, I do wish A.J. Ayer, this British philosopher, wouldn't go around calling himself an atheist. It implies he takes religion too seriously. He says, this creed that religion can be dispatched in a few brisk arguments outlined in David Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion and then laughed off kept me going for some years and when I found myself wavering I would return to Hume in order to pull myself together he started to see the cracks forming in his atheistic worldview in fact to the shock of his colleagues he actually announced several years later in an article he wrote in the statement statesman that he came back to his faith in Christ and the thing that sort of set him over the edge was the fact that when he looked around at all the people he admired, all of the scholars and writers throughout history, all of them were believers. In addition to that, he couldn't shake the fact that language itself seemed to be something that was loaded onto our hardware from birth. But he said the thing that was really the watershed moment for him losing his faith in atheism was the fact that as he was writing this novel about a couple living in Nazi Germany, that uh, a lot of the ravings that Adolf Hitler had were driven by his neo-Darwinistic ideology. And so that's what set him over the edge and brought him back to belief in God. And he summarizes his whole journey by saying, my departure from the faith was like a conversion on the road to Damascus. My return was slow, hesitant, doubting. So it always will be, always be. But I know I shall never make the same mistake again. One famous philosopher called God a category mistake. Yet the real category mistake made by atheists is not about God, but about human beings. Samuel Taylor Coleridge once said, Read the first chapter of Genesis without prejudice and you'll be convinced at once. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Then Coleridge adds, and man became a living soul. Materialism will never explain those last words. One of the things that you notice of the naturalistic worldview is its incapability to explain the complexities of human existence, including this sense that we have within us that morality is something that is real. It's not just some sort of cultural construct, but it's something that's overarching. That when we see atrocity halfway across the globe, that we really mean that it's wrong. Not that it's just wrong in my opinion. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about. That people, human beings, sense within themselves, even without the law, that there is something that's right or wrong. He says in verse 17 and 18, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, 
If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law, in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not, te- do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Apparently, some of these um, religious people, believers, were actually engaging in stealing. And what most people think is that um, they were actually stealing from non-Jewish people. Because in verse 22, Paul says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Apparently, they thought, okay, it's wrong to steal from anybody else, but if it's a non-Jewish person, it's okay. He says in verse 22 through 24, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of their self-righteous hypocrisy, the non-Jewish people who had no belief in the God of the Bible were, were blaspheming God. They were resistant to listening to God and what he had to say. And really, self-righteousness turns people off from God. That's one of the main complaints that you see from people who are non-Christians. When you ask the average non-Christian person, what do you think about Christianity? The first thing that comes up is hypocrisy, self-righteousness. And so this is something that, that really creates a barrier for people investigating God. He says in verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Um, You know, during Paul's day, the act of circumcision, either as an infant or as an adult, somebody who is a non-Jew converting to Judaism, meant that you were taking on the burden or the weight of the law. And so Paul says it doesn't really matter whether or not you undergo this ritual of circumcision because you're not capable of actually living out the law. In fact, by you breaking the law, breaking your observance, it really means that circumcision doesn't matter in your case. Finally, he says a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now this seems a little odd, but what he's talking about is something that Moses predicted. That one day this sign of circumcision would actually become a picture of God entering into our lives. Deuteronomy 30 verse six says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And he did this by giving us the Holy Spirit, bringing about an influence in our lives that actually causes us to think about God. Okay, let's draw a couple points of application here. You know, you're looking at this and you're like, this isn't really an uplifting message. It's kind of bumming me out, right? Well, really, if you're here and uh, maybe you've been investigating Christianity for some time, you're really left with two choices, according to Paul. 
One is you can love God perfectly, which as we've seen is impossible, or you can be loved by God perfectly. You know, the alternative here, the plan B, plan A is to try to like roll the dice and see whether or not your good works outweigh your bad works. Plan B is to admit I can't do it on my own. I know that I fall short. And you know, the great news is that God understands our weakness. He understands our moral frailty. And in his mercy and in his love, he decided to send his own son Jesus to come and pay our moral debt, to wipe away the guilt that creates distance between us and him. And the Bible says that the moment we turn to him and receive the forgiveness that he has purchased, we can have a relationship with God and experience salvation. But really, you have to make a decision. You have to cash it in. God's not gonna force this upon you. I heard a study recently that um, over the last, I think, you know, four or five years, that there is about $44 million of uncashed gift cards circulating in America. You know, God has given you an incredible gift. He's paid your debt, but he's not gonna force you to cash that in. You have to come to him in humility and receive that gift. Yeah, we thank you, Jesus, that you showed us a better way, that uh, even though you came to earth and lived a righteous life, that you didn't turn your nose uh, look, look down at us um, as a result of that, but that instead uh, you showed us what true humility looks like. And um, I pray that we can grow to become a spiritual community that is characterized by humility and not self-righteousness. And I pray, Lord, for uh, those of us who may have come to the realization that you know all of our good works don't erase our guilty, uh, guilty um, nature and um, that we stand uh, guilty before you. And um, I pray that if we have uh, come to that realization that we would in humility turn to you and receive what Christ has done for us. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.